0: 20. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks out of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sam.
1: Well, again, I want to thank you for having me here today and I want to thank you for your church's interest in the work that I do and... uh, It's a great encouragement for me to come up here today and a great pleasure to be able to come and to speak to you on this topic of uh, speaking with Muslims. Now I don't know your experience of Muslim people or of, of the topic of Islam. It may be that you don't know a Muslim at all or it may be that you do know a Muslim. You may just have a Muslim friend from work or school or maybe you've worked with refugees and you've met some there. I don't know where it is. Certainly I... I assume that all of you have seen something of Islam on the news. It's generally on the news every night, in one way or another, or on the in the Australian newspaper, in one way or another. It's 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 there in the news a lot. The topic of Islam. I think for many Christians, if we don't know too much about Islam, we may feel that it's really in the too hard basket, in terms of even knowing what this religion's about, or even being confident to be able to speak to a Muslim, it's in that too hard basket. And that's what I'm trying to address today. One of the differences between Christianity and Islam is that Muhammad was born around 600 years after Jesus. So he was born about 570 AD. And after 600 years, Christianity has spread a long way. It's gone a very long way after 600 years. And so what we find is that in the Quran it talks about Christianity a lot. So what this means is that a Muslim who may not know much of their faith, but just goes to mosque a bit, maybe reads the Quran a little bit, is hearing about Christianity a fair bit. Islam defines itself over and against two, uh, over and against Christianity and Judaism and some other religions. So what it means is that if you do meet a Muslim and they're sort of a, a little bit keen for their faith, they're, they're taking their faith seriously, they will have been instructed by the Quran itself about Christianity. And so if you meet a zealous Muslim, they will be ready to talk to you because their very book that they, re- that they read regularly is speaking to them about Christianity and Jesus and, and what they're to say to Christians. So that's quite different to the Christian, isn't it? When we read the Bible, there's nothing about Muhammad. When we read the, the Bible, there's nothing about Islam. So you can be a well-educated Christian in the Bible and not really know about Islam because it just, it's just not there in our book. And I think that's part of the reason why as Christians we can be feeling there's this big religion in the world and and, and we don't know too much about it because it just doesn't come up naturally in our book. What I'm trying to do today is to show you a natural link to our book so that I'm not going to be giving you lots of verses from the Quran. I'm not going to be giving you maps of Arabia. I'm not going to be asking you to recite anything in Arabic. It's going to be an evangelical response a gospel response to Islam. I'm not really, as I said there, I'm not going to be giving you lots of details about the religion of Islam itself, although some structural things about it. If you want to know more about that, then you received a leaflet when you came in for the Engaging with Islam course. And that's a free online course where I sit in front of a camera and do all types of things for you with uh, teaching you about Islam and th- that's where you can find out the details and, and, and follow other things up and then later on today I'll actually be reading a chapter of the Quran here at two o'clock and so if you, if you want to know what Islam actually says we're going to read a whole chapter together and, and that's a much better way of doing it but that's not what I'm trying to do this morning I want to look particularly at having an evangelical response to Islam Now, there are many ways of talking to Muslims. Uh, You can tell your testimony to a Muslim, and that's a great way to to share the gospel with your Muslim friend. Other Christians have developed storytelling as a way of speaking to Muslims, and that's a great thing to do as well. There's another uh, train of of, uh, engaging with Islam which actually tries to show Muslims what Islam actually teaches, because what the Quran actually teaches about what to do with Christians, what to do with women, is very often what you're not allowed to say Islam says. And so people will say, well, we need to show Muslims actually what their religion actually teaches. And, uh, and, and, and that's a helpful way of, of Muslims seeing the truth about their religion. Other people will say, we, we need to start with the Quran. The Quran speaks about Jesus. And so that's a great place to start with a Muslim where we can take a story of Jesus doing something in the Quran." And then move to the gospel that way. They're all great ways and I recommend them and I'm not opposed to them. But what I'm trying to do is to think through the evangelical response. And I want to think through how is it that we as Christians don't need to learn about Islam, don't need to learn the stories in the Quran, don't need to, how to learn how to prove Islam is wrong or anything like that. How is it that we should just be presenting Christianity to Muslims? How is it that we just do evangelism? How is it that we present our scriptures? So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to work out an evangelical response here. Because, you see, do we simply just share the gospel? Do we simply just share the gospel? Well, no. No, we don't just simply share the gospel. Think about the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul, when he speaks to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, he goes into the synagogue and... He says to them, the promises that God made to our forefathers have been fulfilled in Jesus. And he quotes the scriptures to them and he he declares to them that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. But when he speaks to the Gentiles from various backgrounds, he doesn't speak that way, does he? It's quite different. And so the book of Acts chapter 15 is a classic chapter where when he speaks to the Greeks in Athens, he starts off by saying that idols don't represent God. Idolatry is not true. Idols do not represent God. The one who truly represents God is is Jesus, whom he's raised from the dead. And so when he talks to the Gentiles... it's a a different approach, isn't it? I forgot to say, he also talks about God's the creator of everything. So when he speaks to the Gentiles, he says, God's the creator of everything, idols don't represent him, his true representative is Jesus. And so we see in the book of Acts that Paul has generally different ways of speaking to Jews compared to Gentiles. So the question I've had is, how would Paul share the gospel with Muslims? How would Paul share the gospel with Muslims? Because let me tell you, Muslims are not like Jews. And Muslims are not like Gentiles. They're their own group. And so what I want to do here is not just, in one sense, think about how would Paul share the gospel with Muslims, but how do you share the gospel with any different type of group of people? In this case, I'm going to think particularly about Muslims. Well, to answer this, we need to understand the religious culture, in particular, the religious culture of the community you're trying to reach? What is the the beliefs about God that this culture has that we need to take in mind when we're presenting the gospel to them? Now, when it comes to Islam, Muslims have two key beliefs about God which we need to take into account when we want to speak to them. The first is that Muslims... Believe, they're taught to believe that they believe all the prophets. Now I don't know if a verse has come up here. Here we go, yes. So Muslims will say, We believe all the prophets. And as in just a show of hands, has anyone ever spoken to a Muslim and they've said to you, We love Jesus? Anyone ever a couple of people, yeah, okay, about four or five people there. And so the Muslim will say, Look, we love Jesus, we accept Jesus. We accept Jesus, we love Jesus, he's a great prophet. In Islam. Now, the reason why Muslims say this is because this is one of the creedal statements that comes from the Quran. So, if we can have that first verse up on the screen there. So, th- this is a verse from the Quran, and this is repeated about four times in the Quran, this type of formula. It says, Say, O Muslims, so this is what Muslims are to say to Christians, we believe in Allah, that is God, and that which was revealed unto us, Muslims. It's speaking about the Quran there, what was revealed from God to the Muslims, and that which was revealed unto Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes of Israel, and that which Moses and Jesus received, and that which the prophets received from their Lord. We make no distinction between any of them, and unto him we have surrendered. So here's this very strong statement in the Quran that Muslims are meant to believe in all of the books of God. The book that God gave to Moses, the book that God gave to Jesus, the book that God gave to all the prophets. You can see it's strangely formulated, but that's the general idea. And so Muslims have got this strong belief that they believe all the prophets, they believe in all the books. And the result of this is that when we say, uh, believe in Jesus and what he's done for you, they say, We already believe in Jesus. We already believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. And you can see because they've got that belief, it means that you don't really make any progress. In fact, what they would say is that the the book I believe in the Quran gives me a later and better understanding of Jesus than what you've got. But I already believe in Jesus. I already believe believe in all the prophets. So the That's the first part of Islamic culture that you need to be aware of, that Muslims are convinced that they believe all the prophets. The second belief that Muslims have that we need to take into account when we think about how we're going to present the gospel to them is that the Bible is corrupt. The Bible is corrupt. And this is a fairly standard thing across most Islamic cultures. They will say the reason why the Quran came was that all these other books were corrupt. I know that's not what that verse says. It says they're all meant to accept them. But the way historically this works out across Islamic cultures is that Muslims are taught that the Bible is corrupt. And so for some Muslims, even just saying the word, just saying the word Bible can start an argument. Right? So you might say, I don't want to be involved in any arguments. Right? I don't want to go being argumentative, I just want to talk to them about the Bible. As soon as you say the word Bible for some Muslims, who are active in the mosque at least, and, and even just part of their general culture, in their minds you've actually even started an argument by using the word Bible because it's almost universal that they've been taught that the Bible's been corrupted. And so instead of being able to move on to evangelism and speak about Jesus, you've now got to do apologetics, You've now got to start answering questions, talking about the reliability of the Bible. And so we've got to take that into account when we think about Islamic cultures. Now, the two points that I've just brought brought up here, that Muslims believe all the prophets and that the Bible is corrupted, I have found to be true with all the Muslim cultures that I've experienced. I'm at a university where I speak to Muslims from... Saudi Arabia, from Iran, from Indonesia, from Malaysia, Aussie Muslims that I meet, and these these two cultural understandings that, that Muslims believe, all the prophets, and that the Bible's corrupt, of what I found there. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm speaking in gener, uh, gen, gen, generalities, but it's still generally true. With any Muslim that you know, you need to talk to them, find out who they are, but this is where I found most culture... To be most of their Islamic culture to be. Now, what does this mean for how we present the gospel to Muslims? See, if if this is the case, if Muslims say, I believe all the prophets, I love Jesus, I believe all the prophets. I make no distinction between any of them. I believe them all. And they also believe that the Bible's corrupt. What does this mean for how we present the gospel to a Muslim? Is that the next slide up there? Thank you, yes. Well, it means that we have to present the gospel in such a way to show a Muslim that they don't believe the prophets. Okay, we need to present the gospel in such a way that it shows a Muslim that they don't believe the prophets. And secondly, we need to present the gospel in such a way that it shows that the Bible has been preserved. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to, I'm trying to say let's not do apologetics but let's let, let, let's let the gospel itself answer these questions and think through how, how does the gospel answer them. Because what I want to do is I want to do evangelism. I want to be able to share the gospel with people. What's the right way of presenting it? So how can we present the gospel to Muslims that shows them that they don't believe the prophets How can we present the gospel to Muslims in such a way that it shows the Bible is preserved? Okay, well, the next thing you need to know is that while the Muslims say they believe all the prophets, they don't. They say they believe the prophets, but they don't. When Muslims say they believe all the prophets, what they mean is they believe everything Muhammad the prophet of Islam they believe everything that Muhammad tells them about the other prophets and that's quite different to us isn't it you see the quran does not contru- con- contain the books of moses it doesn't contain the torah it doesn't contain the psalms of david you now the bible's got lots of different books in it the quran is just one book from Muhammad. And so when Muslims say to you we believe all the prophets, what they mean is we believe what Muhammad says about the prophets. That's what they mean. So come with me in your mind now. I want you to get your your Bible and I want you to go to Romans. No, 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 this is just in your head. This is in your head. I want you to go to Romans and I want you to get rid of everything before romans so your bible's going to start at romans okay so i'm making a new bible for you here you're going to go to romans everything before B- romans we're getting rid of that then i want you to go to philemon the end of paul's writings and everything after that i want you to get rid of that as well so this is your new bible right i'm making what i'm doing is i'm making for you a christian equivalent of the quran if the Bible was the Quran, this is what it would look like. It would start at Romans and it would finish at Philemon. That is it would just be the writings of one man, Paul. Now if you believed if that was your Bible, would you believe in creation? Yeah, of course you would. Romans chapter 1 speaks about God creating everything. Would you know about Moses? Of course you would. Paul speaks about Moses, you'd know about Jesus, you'd know about Elijah. You'd know about Pharaoh. You know about the Exodus. You would know about Abraham and Ishmael and, and the covenant. So you'd know all those things, wouldn't you? Now that's what the Quran's like. It's it's one man, Muhammad, telling you about everyone else. But that's not our that's not our Bible, is it? And this is where Christianity. Christians and Muslims mean completely different things even though we say the same words because Christians believe all the prophets as well. But we don't believe them the way Muslims do. When Muslims say they believe the prophets, what they mean is we believe everything Muhammad tells us. When Christians say they believe the prophets, what they mean is we read them. So Christians just don't believe in Moses because Paul or Jesus tells us we read the law of Moses. right? The first, now, is it, have I got my next picture up here? Can I go to the next one? Okay. This is this new Bible that I've had produced. It's just an NIV, so don't, don't worry about it. <clears throat> it's just an NIV. And what I've done is I've, I've changed the title to the traditional category names. Because, you see, Christians are actually the people who truly believe the prophets. The Law of Moses is uh, are the the first five books of the Bible. We have the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We've got about forty odd different prophets over about a fifteen hundred year period, from different languages, different locations, in in one book. Because the Bible's not one book, is it? We are the people who actually read all the prophets. This is going to sound unusual, what I'm going to say now, but Christianity is an inclusive religion. We tend to think of Christianity being an exclusive religion, and it is, but it's also inclusive because we include all the prophets. We read all the prophets. Islam says it believes all the prophets, but then goes and excludes them and just has one. Now, the result of this, and this is my first suggestion for when you talk to a Muslim is that you stop using the word Bible. Stop using the word Bible. Just as Paul had one way to speak to Jews, one way to speak to Gentiles, I'm saying that a helpful way to speak to Muslims is like this. Because when you stop using the word Bible and instead start saying Torah, Prophets, Psalms and Gospel, you demonstrate to Muslims that it's actually Christians who believe all the Prophets. The way you present the gospel shows them that they don't believe the prophets that you do. But you're not being critical of Islam at all, you're just actually explaining your own faith in a way that is helpful to them. Because when you say Bible to a Muslim, that's not helpful to them. It actually covers over something very helpful that they need to know. Because Muslims don't know what's in the Bible. I've been up in Sydney, in the Islamic areas of Sydney, walking around the streets there, doing some walk-up evangelism. And one of the first questions I ask Muslims, I'll say to them is, do you know what's in the Bible? I've never met a Muslim who actually knew what was in it. When they found out that Christians read all of the prophets, they were amazed. You know, I had a, a a student from Saudi Arabia come to my church from the university. He came to my church and we were having a sermon... On, the, uh, on one of the psalms and afterwards he said to me why were you having a talk from the psalms the psalms have got nothing to do with Christianity now, did, did you know that <laughs> that in the Muslim way of thinking the psalms are just for David or the Jews or something Now, I think the psalms are fairly important in all of your lives aren't they but to the Muslim way of thinking, no, the Psalms were just for them. You just read the Gospel or the Bible. He had no idea what was in it. When he found out that the Bible had all of the prophets, it was amazing for him. Have I criticized Islam in any of this? haven't even mentioned it. Do you have to know about Islam in any of this? You don't even have to know about it. Just stop using the word Bible. Say Torah, prophet, Psalms and Gospel. See, when we say Bible, we hide what's in it. it. makes it sound like one book. The worst thing I think you can do is to get a Bible and make it look like a Quran. because then you make it look like one book to them even more so. This makes it look quite different. This suggestion that I've got here of Torah, Prophet, Psalms, Gospel, it's not novel, it's actually ancient. This is how the New Testament speaks about the Bible, doesn't it? I'm just using the, the categories that Jesus uses here. So this is not a, a new novelty to not use the word Bible. It's actually an ancient, authentic way of speaking about our scriptures. Uh, when, when technology allowed us to put into one book, it just took on a new name. Before that time, it was called uh, this. See, the great thing as Christians, and if you're not a Christian here tonight uh, today, the great things about being a Christian is that we actually believe all of the prophets we're not just a little sect who just follows one particular person. What what Jesus brought, the message that Jesus brought, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brought, is the message of all the prophets, isn't it? And this is why Christians read them. This is one of the reasons why I know that Christianity is true, because it's not just based on one person. I know we sing about Christ as our foundation, and it is true that we're on Jesus, but... It, That's not the only way we can describe it as well. We actually believe all the prophets. The message we teach, the message we love, comes from all the prophets. And so we see here that that this is the first belief in Islamic culture that we can deal with. Muslims say they believe in all the prophets by speaking to them and presenting the gospel in this way, that is, not by using the Bible, but the Torah, Prophets, Psalms and Gospel. When we do that, we address that first belief of theirs. Now what about the second belief they have? That the Bible's corrupted. We can have the next diagram please. We can actually deal with this idea that the Bible's not corrupted in a few ways. The way that I've typically done it is that I'll talk about the ancient manuscripts that we have and maybe you've seen those types of discussions where you talk about the Codex Sinaiticus or the Codex Alexandrinus, that these ancient manuscripts we have from the... uh, some fragments from the 2nd century, then manuscripts from the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, and we can look at those from different regions and see that they all have the same text. And so you can certainly answer it that way, but there's another way you can do it, which is a bit more evangelistic. And that is, when we explain what Christians believe, don't do it from the Bible, but show what Christians believe from the Torah, from the prophets, from the Psalms and the Gospel. Because you see, Christian belief is not just from Jesus. Christian belief is not just from Paul. Have a look at that table that I've put up there for you. The idea that God made us in his image that we're made in the image of God, is that a Christian belief? Did it begin with Christianity? Of course not. It begins on the very first page of Genesis, doesn't it, that God made male and female in his image. We see the idea of the image of God in the books of the prophets in different ways. There's different visions of the image of God that the prophet Daniel and Ezekiel see. Psalm 8 is all about how God has made us in his image to rule over his creation. The image of God is really important because it shows that God has made a connection between us and him. In fact, Jesus is called the image of God. One of the grounds for the incarnation, one of the grounds that God can become a man is the foundation of the doctrine of the image of God. See, sometimes Muslims will say to me, how can God become a man? I don't know if you've spoken to a Muslim about this, but they'll say, how can God become a man? It's impossible. God is is transcendent. He's the high and mighty God. And so what we might do as Christians, and what I used to do was I'd go to John's Gospel, where Jesus says... Before Abraham was, I am, or, or something like that, and I'd show where Jesus speaks about his divinity. But I realised that I wasn't making much—I wasn't making much ground. So instead, what I do is I go back to the Torah and I show that God made us in His image; that God actually made a connection between us and Him. Now that's interesting because in Islam. Generally, God does not make us in his image. The Quran doesn't have the idea of the image of God. The the other books they have may have it. But you see, in Islam, God didn't make you in his image. There is no connection between you and God. We also see that God's plan is to dwell with his people. Now, the idea of God dwelling with his people... You know when we read that in Revelation where it says, Behold, I have made all things new, there'll be no more mourning, crying, weeping, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, and now God will dwell with man. You know that idea from Revelation. Is that a Christian idea? Did that begin with Christianity? No, it didn't begin with Christianity. When God made Adam and Eve, it was that he would dwell with them in the garden. Wasn't it it's not a Christian idea? And then when God made the nation of Israel, when he took that one man, Abraham, and made him into a nation, it was so that he could dwell with his people. And so they make the tabernacle so that God can dwell with his people. And so this idea that God made us in his image, that there's a connection between us, and that, and that God dwells with his people, it's not a Christian idea. It's a message of all the prophets, isn't it? Just like the, the image of God. Now, again, that's important because in the Quran, God doesn't dwell with his people. When God makes Adam in the Quran, he's not there in the garden. And in Islam, when they talk about paradise, the Quran never says that Allah will dwell with you. It talks about there being splendid clothes and luxury, and for the men, each man will have his own harem and all these types of ideas. But it never says, and you will dwell with God. Now, why do I say that? Well, you see, if Muslims don't have the idea that God made us in his image, and so there's a connection between us and God that we can, that God can express his attributes through us, if they don't have that foundation, if they don't have the foundation that God wants to dwell with his people, if they don't have that then for them it's, com- it's completely logical that Jesus couldn't be God because they've got a completely different concept of God, haven't they? Now for us, God did make us in his image. God does dwell with his people. And so we have a completely different grounds for understanding it. And the belief that we have that God made us in his image, the belief that we have that God dwells with his people it's not just a Christian idea. It comes from the Torah, from the prophets, the Psalms, and the gospel, yet the Quran denies these things. Now, in showing this to a Muslim, I'll give one more example the Son of God. I'll just do this one quickly, then we'll finish up. The Son of God, saying Jesus is the Son of God, in the Quran, if you say that Jesus is the Son of God, according to the Quran, you're the worst of believers, you've committed a great sin, and you are to be militarily conquered. That's the, um, that's the result of saying Jesus is the Son of God. It's, you, you are to be conquered for saying that type of thing. Now, is the Son of God a Christian idea? Did the Son of God begin with the Council of Nicaea? Did the Son of God begin with the Apostle Paul? Well, no. See, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that that, that just didn't spring into existence with Paul. Israel, the nation of Israel, is called the Son of God in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. In the books of the prophets, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes his covenant promise with King David, he says to King David, speaking of David's sons, I will be his father and he will be my son. And in Psalm 2, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The idea of the Son of God was around a long time before Christianity came. The idea of the Son of God is not a Christian idea. In fact, I would argue that there is nothing in Christianity that is new. Well, I'll temper that a bit. There is nothing in Christianity that is novel. Christianity is new, but it's not novel. What we believe as Christians is grounded in God's revelation throughout all of the prophets. And so when we talk about the image of God and God, uh, Jesus being the image of God who expresses God to us perfectly as a man when we talk about God as Father, when we talk about the Son of God, when we talk about the priesthood and the sacrifice for sin, when we talk about God dwelling with these people, all of these big gospel truths actually are rooted in all of the prophets. It takes a bit more effort to show that to a Muslim, but when we show Muslims that what we believe comes from all the prophets, it's actually testimony to them that the Bible hasn't been corrupted because there is one message all the way through. And, And we know that as Christians, don't we? When we read it, there's this one story going all the way through it. And I think that, again, this gives testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel that we believe. That Christians don't have to go around saying, well, all the earlier books are corrupted. We actually go and read the earlier books because the gospel we believe is truly in them. I'll finish up now, uh, just with a few concluding statements. So, see so what book binds all of these books together? It's the story of the covenants that we hear—the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David. There's one story all the way through. You know, the books of the Bible build on each other. These books, as they start off and we get more and more books throughout our scriptures, they build on each other and they, uh, they're meant to be read together. In fact, you can't understand Jesus without having read those earlier books, can you? When we speak about how our beliefs come from all of the prophets and show this, then this testifies to Muslims that our message has not changed Now, what are the advantages of of speaking to a Muslim like this? Well, I think this is a great place for you to start because it requires no knowledge of Islam. I'm not asking you to remember one date. I'm not asking you to remember one verse of the Quran. I'm asking you to know what your Bible is and how it fits together and how this is actually amazing. We, we just take this for granted, don't we? We just take it for granted that the Bible fits together. Let me tell you, other religions don't work like that. What they do is they say, oh yeah, we believe all those people but that's all corrupted and we just have our own book now. We don't do it like that. We actually say, well, we, we just believe all of them. We believe all these books. We must not just take for granted... How great Christianity is, how great the Bible is. I think this is the first place you need to start when talking to a Muslim by understanding your own scriptures and, um, and, and not using this, the word Bible, but Torah, prophets, psalms, and gospel. You need to learn the Bible, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you want to talk to a Muslim, if you want to be confident before a Muslim, learn the Bible. The other reason I like this approach is that it works with lots of Muslim cultures at at, at any time. And so you'll find this is a helpful way to talk to Muslims from almost any culture. It's also, because we've considered the fundamental beliefs of Islam, it's very challenging to a Muslim when you speak in these ways. It's very challenging, but it's not confrontational. It's challenging but not confrontational because you're not saying anything against Islam, you're just explaining the Bible in a way that really speaks to them. You know how sometimes we can speak it in such a way that doesn't really connect and then we've got to get confrontational on top of that or something? Which is not actually how we want to do it. We actually want the very way that we speak to be the challenging, you know, the gospel itself to be the challenging way. And so we don't have to mention Islam, so we're not confrontational in that sense. I actually think that that the advantage of this is that it also strengthens Christians because it helps us as Christians to see that what we believe is true. Our religion is not based on one man. Our religion is based on all of the prophets. And so if, if if you've got any doubts about Christianity, have no doubts. We're the ones who actually follow all of the prophets. It's not Muslims. And so speaking to Muslims this way, I believe, allows us to do evangelism rather than having to do apologetics. And I think that that's a great way forward. So I'm going to finish up now uh, by praying for us and giving thanks to our God for what we have in the gospel. And uh, just a reminder that I'll be here giving you some more details at 2 o'clock later on today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you uh, for the way that you've spoken to us in Jesus and that the way that Jesus fulfills all of what you said throughout the prophets. Please help us not to take this for granted, but to see how wonderful and amazing this is. Father, we pray for the Muslim world. We pray that you'll be opening doors for people to bring the gospel there. We pray that you'll help us with the Muslims we know to have confidence to speak to them. And Father, we also pray for peace in the Islamic world as there is so much turmoil in many places. Father, again, we thank you for the great news of Jesus, the the Prince of Peace. And we pray that the message of all the prophets may be made known to the Muslims around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.